Hello. In this episode of AS for Architecture, I spoke with Annette Fierro about high-tech architecture and its origins in the work of Cedric Price and Archigram and others, and the unfolding of their utopian speculations in the high-tech movement, all laid out in glorious technicolour in her recent book, Architecture of the Technopolis, Archigram and the British High-Tech, published by Lund Humphreys in November this year. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of AS for Architecture. I'm talking today to Annette Fierro uh, of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Annette, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Hello. Hello, Ambrose. Uh, Hello, audience in the UK. Uh, I am an associate professor of architecture at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, where I am sitting in my office right now watching it rain and be chilly, as it is in England usually. Um, do you want me to give the full CV? Well, well, no, no, not the full CV, but so, so you teach within the architecture department, obviously University of Pennsylvania architecture department is enormously highly thought of, and you're a historian within that, you're, or a theorist. Uh, I'm many things. I'm a theorist, I would say, a critic and a theorist. Uh Uh, I was not trained as a historian. I was trained as an architect. I'm Uh a licensed architect. I practiced architecture for seven years, decades ago. Uh, I was trained in Houston at Rice University, uh, first in engineering and history of architecture, not history of art, history of art. Uh, and then I uh, went well, you, to... You majored in engineering and then and minored in, in history of art? Yes, uh-huh. yes. So you were already orientated towards... Very much so. I mean, en- engineering at Rice University was a tough kind of mathematical, uh, scientific... Uh, uh, endeavor. Uh, everyone assumed you would go, you would get a master's degree or a PhD degree. This is mm-hmm. what the program was set up for. Uh, and I, I practiced as an engineer for, I think, a full summer. I barely made it through. I realized I could not do this. <laughs> so I went back uh, and engaged the humanities in architecture. Uh, so I have a master's of architecture. I also did a lot of photography, which is relevant because most of the photographs in my book I took myself. Uh, so I, I'm a sort of jack of all trades. I teach design studios. Uh, sometimes I practice, not that often, uh, but I've written two books. I write papers. I go to symposia. I do the standard academic. So you did, you, did a, you did a PhD at a certain point? No, I didn't. No PhD. Oh. Yeah, You're just a natural writer. You're not a forced writer. No, I, when I came through the academy, it wasn't expected even that you would need a PhD to teach. Mm-hmm. There are several people here uh, that don't have PhDs that teach. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fairly standard. But yeah. I'm very grateful for, for for you speaking to me. When I saw, so you've got this new book coming out, uh, which you're launching this later this month uh, in London, um, Architectures of the Technopolis, Archigram of the British High Tech, which you published with Lund Humphreys. And uh, as you mentioned, it's um, extremely beautifully illustrated with a huge number of colour photographs, which is which is pretty rare. Um, perhaps not with Lund Humphreys. Perhaps that's what's good about them. Well, that's why I chose them. I looked at the quality of their books. Um, mm-hmm. I had a couple of choices, but I looked at the quality of their publications, their 
their photography, their graphic design, the kind of heft of the book, the you know the the printing of the book. And census is about archigram um, and the high tech. I, I thought it should be color. Uh, it just seems to make no sense to be black and white. So I went with Len Humphreys. That's quite an interesting. Perhaps that's an interesting thing we could start off. I would love to. I would love to know about the origins of this book and and your interests in it. But that's a. Perhaps we can come back to this idea of color because, obviously, that is critical. And I don't think perhaps when people think of high tech, they do necessarily. They perhaps think of it as late modern and therefore within the grays and beiges of modernist architecture, but it really isn't. No, not if you look at its origin. Its origin, which is what the book is really all about. Um, I, In the preface, I talk about the Centre Pompidou in Paris uh, as really the origin or the linchpin of uh, the high tech with the more academically, um, uh, like rhetorically oriented archigram. Mm -hmm. uh, and archigram was certainly all about color. Uh, and so that is its legacy. Um, and in fact, uh, I could spend quite a bit of time on the Pompidou. This is what really started all of this. Um, mm -hmm. The first book that I wrote, I'm, a, I'm definitely a Francophile. The first book that I wrote uh, was was um, a series of essays on the Grand Projet of Francois Mitterrand in Paris in the late 80s and 90s. Um, and I was looking at especially the uh, monuments, the civic buildings, which are made of glass. So it was an excursion into issues of transparency, both at technological, technical levels, as well as discursive levels. Um, and so this notion of glass as being uh, particular to these Mitterrand projects as being about a socialist architecture, so the institution, which is uh, open and available to the masses uh, versus the way institutions have been thought of before as being edified, solid structures, really originated um, in, in the 60s in this, uh, with the Centre Pompidou, which sort of blew apart uh, ideas of what the civic institution could be. Um, and given that, you know, the further I went, I finished that book, um, it was published by MIT Press in the early 2000s. But lingering on the Centre Pompidou, which became a kind of um, muse, <laughs> um, the more I came to know it, the more I realized, well, this is really not a French building at all. This is really a British building uh, because one could compare it to many of the proposals of Archigram that were never built and to Cedric Price's Fun Palace. And a very important critic named Rainer Banham does exactly that in the late 70s and talks about it, you know, exactly in the lineage uh, of Archigram uh, that went on to develop uh, into the British high tech. So that that positioning of the Centre Pompidou gives us a certain thematics that continues through my discussion of all of the work uh, of, of the high tech, especially the later high tech. Really interesting. And and so you were looking at the Pompidou Centre. Why but what I mean, what drew you to I suppose that so the book is a very call yourself a Francophile, it has a very Anglophile kind of vibe to it. Yes. Um, yes. The book is well, once I, I concentrated on the Centre Pompidou, then I switched over everything and I had to read all of the literature and I had to start yeah. all over again yeah. uh, questions of Archigram and the high tech. Yeah. 
But but why did you, why, I suppose the tininess um, is what funding proposals and PhD proposals always have to kind of demonstrate. Why, why, Why did you want to write about it now? Is there a, are we at a significant moment that indicates the end of this phase or are we well i I think we certainly are i mean because of the passing of the members of both archigram and the high tech i mean just this summer michael hopkins died richard Mm -hmm. rogers died in 2021 uh several of the archigram members died early ron heron and warren chalk uh I mean, this is a moment of passing. Even these kind of huge firms uh, that the high tech comprises, uh, they've still been authored uh, by a figurehead. Uh, And so with the passing of those figureheads, we don't know what will happen to the architecture. Mm. Architecture has been unique. And part of my fascination was also that, especially in London, with very few exceptions, you know, the, the significant buildings were built by the high tech, which, which, which was for a global city quite unusual and mm. really, um, significantly unusual in terms of world cities. It, you would have simply local architects building. I mean, I know it's kind of ironic to call them local architects because they are now super global architects, mm. but to have uh, the city of London. I think with, with very few exceptions, perhaps, you know, uh, Herzog and de Miron State Museum uh, addition. Also, there was a Ram Koolhaas building, uh, a bank building in the city of London, uh, and then a Jean Nouvel building uh, across from St. Paul's. Uh, it wasn't until just recently, with the exception of Canary Wharf, of course, that um, there were other architects involved in London's you know, dominant areas. And even somewhere like Canary Wharf, the architecture that's on display, even when it's by into other nationalities, still is kind of high tech, isn't it? And I'm kind of interested in that, that the idea of a high tech has become diffuse. And I was wondering whether that might be sort of trying to document not just that the the, the heroic figures of this movement have started to pass on, but also that the distinctness of it has started to dissipate and we're starting to now instead assume it it's implied like high tech is an implied logic like no one really questions it's it's not startling anymore well i would say that lloyds of london is still startling uh, I would say that um, parts of the cheese grater are still startling. I would say that some of Norman Foster's buildings that, you know, innovate, you know, amazing mm-hmm. you know, concrete modules are still startling. See, I don't think I've, I've been trying to make a distinction between what is high tech and, as you mentioned, Canary Wharf, which I would say is corporate and corporate in an American sense. And there are a lot of American architects, HOK, KPF, uh, SOM, uh, that I would never call high tech. You know, high tech, I give it, I give it proper British credentials. <laughs> so, so maybe we should come to, yeah, I mean, maybe defining high tech that would be that would be a start. And and is it possible to define it uh, outside its historical origins? Does it have 
is it is its is its definition kind of characterized by its linking back to these totemic you've mentioned cedric price you mentioned archigram is it is it that link that makes it high tech rather than uh formal organization aesthetic appearances um and so on so it's the linkage but it's also aesthetic you know kit of parts building that makes its discrete components and pieces uh, very evident uh, with more than a passing resemblance to machines mm -hmm. uh, so that you can see the operative machines uh, as the facade of the building or the um, where the componentry of the building becomes very prominent uh, where uh, even now uh, behind glass, you see the componentry of the buildings. Mm -hmm. Uh, in all of their kind of working operative states. Um, I think that's a working definition of high tech. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, you use this, there's a, um, half a sentence you use in chapter three, where you talk about the co-evolution of architecture, and, of technology and architecture, as high tech as being something to do with the co-evolution of technology and architecture. And I was wondering, it's a, which speaks of a uh, uh, word I've used, before a, a sort of lineage, perhaps. And I was kind of startled in, in, in reading your book. I was very interested in this idea that high tech situates itself in a kind of um, a discourse around egalitarian and socialist ideals. And I was wondering if you would be willing to kind of describe that a little bit, unpack that a little bit. Sure, that's a, that's a big question. Thank you. I try and ask the largest possible questions. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I mean, where does it start? If we, I mean, you start way back in in I documenting some of the kind of utopic visions. Yes, and I think I started with utopic visions because the word utopic is used to frame both these architects' projects. Um, uh, Archigram's projects, but also because the legacy of modernity has it within uh, itself, a proposal of a utopic state. Now, these the, utopia means different things to different audiences in different situations, uh, in different capacities. So I have to be careful here. Um, I would say that, you know, the the tie of modernity to socialism uh, is, you know, a, a, an acknowledged one, you know, certainly the kind of Proposals for low-income housing, for uh, uh, a CIM-inspired cities uh, that that go back to utopic proposals of the 20s and 30s. I think all of that situates situates itself in one way. I think the point that I make with Archigram, um, and I took this on because it's not a conventional reading of Archigram of looking at how their proposals emanated from the acknowledged failure of uh, the housing estates, especially in England. And I think there were three Archigram members who were working then um, with the London County Council. Um, and much of the uh, text, I'm sorry, there's a siren going, much of the text in their first three pamphlets, because of course that's how they practiced, they made pamphlets, um, was uh, challenging the notion of uh, modernist architecture. I mean, first for them as boring, as sober, 
But if you read further into the text, there was a critique, which I think was much more um, interesting, which was that it was universal, which was that it depicted one kind of architecture for everyone, that it was universalist, uh, that it afforded no choice. And so in all of their very early um, projects uh, for housing, like Control and Choice, for example, that I go into great lengths in, in the book, the idea of choice and self-empowerment through choice in terms of making one's own environment is something that pervades um, the ideation of much of their work. They're not alone in that. You know, I would say Constant in France uh, was positioning exactly the same topics in a different way. And of course, bringing in theory of Lefebvre, uh, bringing in uh, a larger context of situationism. situationism. Uh, there was Jonah Friedman also, whose architecture was motivated exactly by the same uh, set of criteria. One makes their own environment that one lives in. And this was all really positioned against a modernist assumption that one architecture could be shared by everyone, for everyone, at one temperature, with one condition of sunlight and hygiene. And so I think... Uh, what Archie Graham proposed in the most provocative of their projects was this idea of breaking with universalism toward an attitude of choice, but also uh, embodied by play. This notion that one could take over their surroundings and express themselves, mm -hmm. uh, express themselves by a kinetics which were not to be taken seriously but at the same point, we're deadly serious philosophically. So this then is my um, thinking on that topic as we go through Archigram, and, and many people have called them late modernists, and the, you know, the kind of um, lineage through technology, through their use of machines, through their uh, uh, notions of you know, articulated joints, articulated structure, one could see that, but they are definitely, um, uh, irreverent toward that legacy. In fact, they decry it repeatedly that they are not modernists, that they are not certainly rationalists. They are never rationalists, that they, their goals are not lofty and reified uh, or noble in any way. In fact, that is their struggle. Um, the way that the, um, the high-tech architects correspond to that is certainly not the same, right? Uh, and and that's those are some of the larger arguments of the book that um, that may look the same uh, and it may have the same kind of passion for technology and and the devotion to the machine uh, that Archigram did, but there's no there was no real critical argument against that. They were following uh, very much a technical. Uh, questioning of pieces, parts, constructions, structures, uh, the nuts and bolts of building. Uh, and at the same time, each one of them was different in their positioning back to social issues. I mean, Richard Rogers certainly was a socialist. Uh, and his urbanist endeavors in London showed that, you know, the his publication on Cities for a Small Planet shows he was also an environmentalist. Uh, Norman Foster is certainly an environmentalist. 
Uh, Nicholas Grimshaw is also. Um, and Nicholas Grimshaw, I've I've never visited Grimshaw's offices in London, but I have in New York. Um, and in New York, his offices work, you know, as a public entity. They have uh, meetings and workshops for the public in their lobbies. They um, do projects which have to do, I mean, sort of anonymous projects that have to do with wayfinding in the city. Um, and they take this on with great gusto. It's, you know, as if they are working for the public good at all times. So these things are complex, right? They're not really monolithic to, um, they're not a set of monolithic interests to the high tech where one can say all of the architects are the same. They're quite different, in fact. But I do like this idea, and you mentioned Meteoron's project in, 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 in France, and this idea of what you called a both a, a technical and a discursive transparency. Yes. They do all have this kind of n new sensibility. And I I suppose I haven't, and I may a culpa, but I, I suppose I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I just, um, as someone who kind of has walked around amongst these buildings since my childhood, not not so much where I came from, which was way out in the countryside, but um, or in a town. Um, but you know, they're part of the kind of the thing that you understand, begin to understand, as when you start studying and looking at architecture. I, I suppose I hadn't really understood that idea of that transparency as having a kind of political dimension. Where does that, where does that politics derive from? I mean, you in your book, you, you obviously you go back to Thomas More's Utopia, but you trace it back before that, and then you you run through to even people like Ruskin, who's, you know, obviously distinct, extremely distinct. One would, one can only imagine that he would be horrified by the, um, by the uh, kind of um, technology in 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 play in in high tech architecture. I, I would, I would think so, um, but you know. He was also interested in craft, and we can certainly talk about craft and the high-tech architecture. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, go on. Like, in in what way? It's so it's not <clears throat> it's not using technology technology in a kind of uh, universalist, one size fits all, off the peg kind of way that the high modernists or the the. Well, I mean, I think what Ruskin was writing about was essentially Taylorism. He was talking about labor and, you know, the um, the inhumanities of the factory, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of scale of production, what it does to the to the workmen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I, you know, I think uh, it reminds me of going to Richard Rogers office um, and looking at how specifically crafted every last uh, window system is so that. We might think that they all look alike, but in fact, they don't. Uh, they're all very particularly crafted for their setting. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're all built. I mean, the model room there is just, you know, is, is outstanding. And they're built, uh, each one lovingly out of wood, uh, sometimes out of Legos, sometimes out of other materials that sort of poke fun at themselves. Uh, but without a doubt, there is craft uh, mm -hmm. at play, right? I was, you know, I... The same thing happens with uh, Foster's uh, buildings, I think. Uh, you know, the kind of attention to the way a structural or constructional idea plays itself out all the way through the form of the building. 
Uh, you know, I think that there is, this, this is not a corporate architecture. I mean, it is because they build for corporations. But if I were to compare them to our architects, to the SOMs, to the KPFs, there is not that sense of craft in the U.S. You know, there is, you know, as it exists in the U.K. And I, you know, as an architect, uh, one has to admit that, right? I think you're way yeah. ahead of us. And your engineers. I mean, the engineering is also part of this discussion. Yeah. Because I, when one of the chapters I write extensively on the impact of the British engineering culture, which is substantial, right? You lead the world in engineering. Uh, your engineers have really set a path that everyone follows across the world. Yeah. So that is not to be played down as well, because we can talk about the architecture, but we also have to look at the impact of the engineers. Yeah. And, it's, and it is substantial. And a sort of integration of an integration of engineering thinking into architecture. And and as you say, I mean, when you were talking about this idea of craft, I was reminded of a lecture I had when I was an undergraduate uh, in architecture at Manchester. And I can't remember the name of the lecturer, but he had worked at Foster's and um, I believe, and uh, that's what he said. I mean, people say things, but I think this is true. Um, and had talked about how uh, for the Willis Faber Dumas building, which you feature in the book as well, which is one of my favorite buildings, um, because it's so audacious, uh, but also because it's so elegant in its technology. But it was at that building that he developed with Pilkingtons, I think, the the kind of technologies around plate glass and also those little, I never know what to call them, kind of little fittings, hangers, they're hangers, yes, they're hangers, hangers. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, that, and that was the precursor to structural glass that was then yeah. developed later by Ra Rice Francis Ritchie in uh, in Paris, right? So there, there is yeah the, this idea of investing these buildings with this craftedness, and then as you've talked about the kind of explicitness of the machinery of the building, of the technology that supports it, which must be co-designed with engineers, I assume, is also part of this this playfulness and i was so i was thinking when you were talking earlier about play and i when when i read that word in your book i was like oh gosh that's wonderful i've not thought about that but what scale are we talking about play here are we talking about play at the scale of detail and bright colors or are we talking about sort of a more kind of lugenic yeah. play <laughs> yeah yes i think both i think both uh, I think the the well the notion of play as Archie Graham engaged it was the play with one's own environment. Mm -hmm. It was also the humor, the you know the irreverence, the notion mm. that one can be creative in a in a in a conception of architecture. Mm. Uh, the the high tech uh, the high tech machine is really about craft. I think you know mm -hmm. I think it's about craft, and I. But it also has roots, um, you know, I think Ova Arup and all of his followers and their roles in these buildings in articulating the pieces and parts can't be understated either. And that was built out of a democratic idea inside the offices. You know, uh, Ova Arup won't take projects uh, that are too far along. They have to be involved at the very beginning. Uh, and and uh, I mean, this is traced in several books. Uh, the the attitude is that every engineering practice has an equal say uh, at the table when these things are being designed. So in a way, the mechanical engineer and the curtain wall engineer and the and the um, the structural engineer 
all have uh, all, all are given an equal say in how the building appears. Mm. That on its own is another um, legacy that isn't really discussed. I mean, this is really mm. coming out of engineering. This the the, the machinery, the the bits and pieces, you know, allowing the um, the floor panel designer. Uh, a moment in the sun uh, where his all of his work and his labor and his craft are evident. And that makes it a whole different um, thing to think about, I think. That's a, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that at all, this idea that perhaps even, and I know you, you touch on this in the book, that the actual forms of the offices themselves were, well, precipitated the type of architecture that emerges, this kind of idea of a co-productive or sharing of the kind of authorship of buildings through both the engineers and the architects. And and also, and you, and you talk about the political dimension, say, for example, in Ken Livingstone's uh, tenure as London mayor, generating a kind of uh, intellectual and social space that enhanced, well, made this type of architecture the right kind of architecture for the moment. It answered the problem that was being asked. Is that is that a fair assumption? I mean, does is is it is that what's happening here, or is to to what extent do we get the feeling that these buildings still remain extremely authored in the same in the sense that we get, uh, you know, the great modernist architects having their name stamped very forcibly, or is there a sense that this architecture emerges out of a, a very different form of practice, um, one that is grounded in a kind of more socially or socialist, I suppose. Um, I mean, that's a very, very good question. It's a very good question. I don't know if I can completely answer that. Can I Can I tell a Rogers building from a Foster's building? Yes, absolutely. And you can too. So they're, they're authored. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, a, you know, the fact that Ova Arab did buildings for both of them uh, does make it... Uh, less less distinct mm. uh, and i also think that you know these these architects are not working alone of course they have you know gigantic uh, offices uh and you know once you when you begin to trace through the people that worked for each of them especially at the beginning it's really a tangle of kinds of personalities that go in and out of the offices that went to the aa with this person or that person uh, that went to California and did a project with Norman Foster while he was there or came back to London and then joined Richard Rogers. You know, it's, and I did start, you know, trying to be quite rigorous historically on all of the different people who worked at different phases of times, but it was impossible. And it, it also became, um, it, it became unnecessary. It didn't seem to be a, you know, a worthy thing to try to pursue who did what, when, in fact, this whole thing is moving forward as this tangle of uh, personages uh, that all have different sensibilities that are shared, but also distinct. Did you see, did you f feel like that there is a distinct evolution within the high-tech movement itself from its early building, obviously Pompidou, um, yes, towards yes. where we are now? Yes. You know, I, th I think there, there definitely was. And some of that um, was was technical. Uh, if you look at Lloyd's of London, um, 
you know, we, we can say it looks like a machine and it does look like a machine because it shows all of its pieces and parts and how they operate. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually does function like a machine. Uh, all Every last bit and piece uh, has a certain role in the building, in its environmental systems, in its structural systems, in its ventilation systems, in its lighting systems, and they're all coordinated together um, in what Ova Arab termed integrated design. Um, in a in a moderate climate like London's, um, uh, to expose all of those pieces and parts to air, to temperature on the outside of a building is not that serious. Uh, but you could never build that kind of building, say, in Philadelphia, because our highs are too high, our lows are too low. Uh, there are no thermal breaks in that kind of construction. So eventually they evolved. So if you look at, say, the back of the cheese grater and walk down the street and compare it to Lloyd's of London, all the systems are there, but they are now under glass. Uh, and that's environmental, right? You can't expose ductworks anymore now that we understand the thermal losses to, the, to all of the componentry that happens by exposing it to, to the temperature, mm. to temperatures. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And that 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 urban that that ecological sustainability or environmental sustainability has emerged probably as uh, as as has the details and the materials of through the input through the integration of the of, of the engineer and the mechanical engineer and the environmental engineer into the design system as well. Um, you have a chapter called Urban Theatricality, and and to go back to Archigram. Yes. Obviously, their work is provocative but it's theatrical it's playful it's yes. it, in a in a sort of way there's something of the inigo jones um john vambra uh kind of a mobile theater set about them you know the tradition in the english in, in, in english architectural or, or or design of the um of the of the mask theater and there's something about that certainly like plug-in city has certainly got that kind of quality about it is scale a necessary aspect of high tech following archigram? Is it necessary that their buildings are enormous? Um, you know, obviously Pompidou, for example, is massively out of scale to the context. Is this part of what they're doing? And 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 is that because they want to perform this kind of so I suppose profoundly emancipatory role in the city and also dominate and be playful at scale and so on and so forth. I think Pompidou wanted to shock, mm -hmm. deliberately wanted to shock. Uh, and that was uh, a principle put forward by the architects, but also by the engineer, Peter Rice. Um, if you compare the Pompidou to Cedric Price's Fun Palace, mm -hmm. um, it was not the same. I think Cedric Price... Uh, always looked at off-the-shelf construction, uh, looked at vernacular building in a very different way. Um, and yet they were both gigantic superstructures that were very theatrical, literally. I mean, the Fun Palace is literally a theater. Mm -hmm. And the way that, uh, if, if you look at some of the early documents, um, the way that he and Joan Littlewood wrote the building, it was as if the architects, the architecture, the components of the architecture were actors 
uh, and the um, play between them was scripted as a plot. Mm. Uh, and there was that literal playfulness mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, that, that the public would come in and begin to play with the pieces and parts uh, through all kinds of um, uh, digital digital tools. Um, so they could both move them manually, but they could also program the whole thing to work. Hmm. Um, that was taken to the Pompidou in a very literal way. I mean, the, the floors in the Pompidou were intended to move uh, themselves. You could imagine enormous cranes trying to move these things up and down. And of course they couldn't, they couldn't build that. Uh, but, you know, the escalator, all of the pieces and parts, and in fact, there was, at the beginning of the, uh, when they first opened the Pompidou, they had little metal ashtrays and little pieces that um, bolted through some of the uh, window mullions that were immediately pilfered in the crowd because they wanted a piece of the building. So they actually took parts of the building with them. Um, and so it did engage the public in a way of playing, taking ownership of the building, uh, both metaphorically, uh, but in the sense of the Pompidou, quite literally. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, that kind of theatricality was also um, based in the study of the happenings, which John Littlewood was involved in, the kind of new theater concept of the 60s and the 70s where there was a change in subject between audience and spectator, where the kind of person walking down the street would become unwittingly even uh, an actor uh, mm -hmm. inside the building. And so there was that sense of um, a kind of empowerment through new theater uh, in terms of being able to express oneself in a context. Uh, so again, you know, an interesting corollary uh, now that, I mean, does Richard Rogers go back and think about Joan Littlewood's theater when he's designing? No, but there's a kind of lineage of how these things developed that make the imagination start to go there. Do you, do you want to climb on, on Lloyds of London? Well, you do. You do. I've had students that tried to climb up as far as they could uh, before the guards told them to get off the building. Uh, you know, that happens at Channel 4, right? People try to sneak around and go into the inner workings of the building. Uh, it's it's an architecture that uh, prods you to engage with it. Mm. Uh, and that there is, that is then the, the sense of theatricality that mm. I think does exist quite literally uh, from Archigram Price to the, to the high-tech architects. Sure, but also back to ideas of the, the the sort of classical or the Renaissance city, perhaps as well. This idea Absolutely. of a of an architecture that's embedded in the urban fabric is very distinct Absolutely. from that mm -hmm. modernist idea of of a block in a landscape. We've got this idea of an an architecture that's you know pompous, framing, framing the street, right? Yeah. Framing, framing the street the... and framing social action. Right. Exactly, exactly, and that is also a huge distinction. I completely agree with that. I mean, might... the way you put it in one of your chapters, you say excess technical, technological, excess technical structures instigated subjective interchange between the inhabitants and the street, which is which is a really fascinating idea. And and this idea that technology in this place, in this form of architecture, then becomes a device for that communication, much like ornament. Yes, I agree. I agree. Exactly. Exactly like ornament. Are they are they conscious of that? Are they doing that on purpose? Is the, is the idea 
to to take technology and enrich it and make it fabulous is this the point oh yes. is, it, is it is it sort of baroque in a peculiar kind of way <laughs> to make it fabulous <laughs> um uh with everything that might mean, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. I, but I, I, I do also like. I also wondered. So this idea of the 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 detail as ornament, and at the same time running concurrently with this movement, we've we've obviously got the postmodern, high postmodernism of people like James Sterling, and you mentioned James Sterling and question the kind of influence that Sterling had, or even though the great respect and influence that perhaps Sterling had on, on someone like Rogers was, 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 was not particular, not particularly great. How do they, how do but they. Rogers, Rogers does. Rogers, Rogers, he was a hero to Rogers. But he didn't infect his, uh, inflect his architecture, infect, my God, uh, inflect his architecture. Um, it, that is kind of questionable. I don't know. I think that's also another kind of, I mean, Sterling was a constructivist. He mm -hmm. owed a great deal to looking at Russian constructivism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that both uh, Terry Farrell and Richard Rogers owe a great deal to Sterling, mm. especially Sterling's battle with the um, with the architectural establishment through Lester Engineering uh, and the kind of um, the kind of battle that ensued with people like Nicholas Pevsner, uh, who who proclaimed that this was uh, this was degenerate architecture, essentially, uh, in the way that Adolf Loos used to proclaim uh, that there was so much expressionism that this was a that it was psychotic, mm -hmm. uh, and you know I think that James Sterling broke the uh, boundaries to what was modernism. And, mm. To, to James Sterling, everyone owes a lot to. Yeah, you can certainly see it in the work of Terry Farrell. I mean, it's very, yeah. it's, it, it's very explicit there because that that that's a very kind of perhaps that's the link between that, as you say, constructivist kind of sensibility you see in Leicester Engineering and 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 something like his MI five building, uh, right. so, um, oh, Charing Cross Station. Sorry, um, you know, it's it's kind of really. <laughs> really explicit, isn't it? I mean, uh, that, those uh, particular. I've always felt with Farrell's buildings that they were enormously. I don't mean to be rude, but they they seemed enormously willful. Like it's not. You're kind of raised in your early architectural education, looking at the kind of stripped down, bare, basic, rudimentary, um, essential kind of characters of high modernism, and then Terry Farrell comes along as he's playing all sorts of mad games, which really don't make. Yeah, the, the combination with classical language and with uh, machine language, yeah. uh, and and the prominence of that of that wedding of that marriage, um, is always been so conflated that it also leaves me somewhat dumbstruck. Yeah. I do I do appreciate though Terry Farrell's uh, urbanism. I think yeah. he's a master urbanist, uh, and I think he, the way that he you know puts together uh, especially passage in and out of different parts of his urban sites and the way mm -hmm. he connects bits of the city back to itself is masterful right mm -hmm. I, I think you know I think he's it's really you know profoundly responsible you know so we can we can bicker about the language but I think the 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 kind of functioning of the building in its site you mm -hmm. know you have to give due credit to. 
Yeah, for sure. No, I understand that. I, I did a podcast recording with um, one of the founders of Farrell's, um, uh, a chap called John Leatherland, who was there at the very beginning with Farrell. Um, and uh, yeah, I understand that it's an extremely sensitive and incredibly thoughtful kind of Exactly. And, and working at a scale, again, going back to this issue around giant scale, I mean, working at the scale of an entire city, I mean, it's really quite impressive. It is, it is, it yeah. is. I, I just wanted to finish on this, This uh, I've enjoy, enjoyed talking to you a great deal, but I wanted to finish on this, I, the, the legacy, I suppose, of Archigram. Are they still, do they still have something to teach us? Are they, or are they um, emblematic of a bygone social and political uh, moment that isn't replicable, and therefore their architecture is a sort of to 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 to, to outside the city of London, I suppose. Is there much influence anymore? Well, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> Maybe I'm asking the right person to answer the wrong question. I don't know. I know that my own students are continually fascinated by their work. Mm -hmm. uh, they still remain uh, heroes in that uh, they continue to question, first of all. They continue to question. And, you know, I think we think of Archigram as the early projects, plug-in city, control and choice, instant city even. But the later Archigram pamphlets point to a very different conclusion, you know, of the object building dissolving into um, small, uh, small machines that occupy the landscape small machines that crawl around under the earth and uh, help the soil or act to plug in little machines that people take on picnics or occupy uh, billboards or, you know, little machines that you can order meals for uh, and, the, and the underground will bring you your meal. You know, those became telephones, right? Uh, and so those were prescient of both the digital culture in terms of uh, dissolving objects um, and impacts into virtual space, into digital space, into um, into everything that we, you know, that we depend on as, or that we, we think of as technological now, that my children think of as technological. Uh, so I think, uh, yes, they're still pertinent, definitely. Definitely. I think also their willingness to challenge the status of uh, architecture as something you design in an architecture studio, which is not entirely meant to be built, uh, but which is meant to challenge and be rhetorical. Uh, they're still heroes, right? They're still heroes at Penn, certainly. They're still heroes at SciArc. They're still heroes in a number of different schools across the world that still hold uh, the, the um, possibility of questioning as part of the way they teach, as provoking, yes. Certainly provoking. Certainly provoking. <laughs> That's a good point to finish on. Thank you very much, Annette. I've very much enjoyed hearing you talk about it and uh, about your great book. Okay, thank you so much, Ambrose. The Ghosts in the Machine of Christmas's Past, Present and Future, all in one podcast. 
Thanks to Annette for taking the time to discuss the book and to Lund Humphreys for the ebook. See the podcast description for links to it and to Annette's profile and links. Thanks for listening.